Well, please take a seat. Um, it's great to be with you. It's great to have live music for a change instead of staring into a screen, singing to yourself at home. So thank you very much, Ben, tonight. Um, for me, anyway, uh, it's great um, to have that. Um, Nick said I can share something about him uh, because I did work with him for a few years. So here we go. Um, <clears throat> two things, if you don't know them about Nick. He has an addiction to men's honeycomb. Uh, if you want anything to get through, if you've got any idea that you want Nick to say yes to, take along a bag of men's honeycomb with you and give it to him as you're presenting your ideas. I'm sure it will get through. His wife had no idea about this addiction and it caused a great deal of pain when we broke it to her um, when he was leaving. Um, the other thing that you need to know about Nick is you need to remind him regularly to explain his accent to people if you're having a guest event. Because otherwise I'll sit there for the first 20 minutes going, is that, is that American? No, maybe it's Canadian. It's, no, it's sounding Aussie now. So get him to explain that accent if you're bringing friends along to an event, all right? Or otherwise I'll be confused for a fair amount of, I think you do it anyway, do you? Yeah, yeah, okay. You probably did it too when you first heard him. Um, okay, that's enough about Nick. Um, Declan over here. If you want to see Declan on uh, the website of For Engage Work Faith, you go back there and have a look. He's under the who, who, are you, who are we? And there's a little snippet in there about him talking about how he integrates his life, um, work and faith together. Okay. You've got some notes, <laughs> yes. You've got some notes there uh, to follow along. That's really just there for you to, as a bit of a map of where we're going tonight, we're going to look at how to make sense of work. And if you haven't got a copy of that, Nick's passing them around, I think, now. This year would have to be the most amazing year of trying to adapt to changes. It just felt like every time you made a little tweak and thought, okay, now life's like this. It just got harder and harder and harder. And uh, I have a friend in Melbourne at the moment, and uh, he's on his own. He lives on his own, and he's been in the lockdown for how many weeks? I can't remember now, but for a long time. And I said to him, you know, uh, you're going to get your little bubble friend to catch up with. Won't that be a great thing? And he said, well, sadly, it's got to be another single person. And so I don't have another single person that lives within five kilometres of me who I'd like to catch up with regularly. So, you know, I'm stuck. And I, I just think that, that sense of trying to be adapting all the time to what's coming next, what's coming next, has been um, the mark of the year. Do you know pre-COVID, over a third of the population were getting used to working from home. And within one month, half of the Australian population workforce were working from home. Um, somebody like Westpac uh, had 1,000 people working from home. After April, they had 22,000 people working from home. So major companies are really committed now to this hybrid model of going into a place to work, but also working from home. It makes a lot of sense. And recent studies have shown that even though we might have kicked and screamed about it when we had to do it, Australians are getting used to it now and they actually would like to work from home for two out of five days a week. Um, and there are a lot of incentives to that. I mean, workers save a lot of time commuting uh, between places. That's a great thing. And employees save an enormous amount of rent 
um, of office spaces. So really, the nature of work, you know, we've lived through a major adaption and change that is not going to go back in the other direction now when it comes to the way we work. And that's going to be the change of the landscape, I think. It's changed forever. And uh, we've been going around talking to people about work uh, in, in various contexts and situations. And they came up with five issues. And I'll just show you what those issues are if you can just pop them up now. Um, one of them was adaptation. So how can I keep adapting to what's going, changing all the time? Another one was running uh, teams remotely. Um, people found that extremely hard if they were in charge of people and trying to get them to do their jobs when they weren't physically in the same space as them. Um, the other one was handling the media um, and the constant bombardment of what they're saying and not allowing that to sort of become your landscape. A little bit like what Sarah was talking about, about how do you, how do you set your, your worldview and your framework um, so that all the other voices don't become the, the voice, your voice. Um, mental health. So people being locked up at home, um, if there are issues simmering before this happened, man, they were magnified through that process of uh, being locked down in, in, in a home situation. So those issues we're tackling with a clinical psychologist, as uh, uh, Darren was saying, uh, called Dr. Darrell Cross, um, uh, and he's also an executive coach. So he he's tries to be practical and give you some tips. If you go to the website over the next five weeks, there'll be one coming up for five minutes every week that you can have a look at and see whether it might be useful for you. That's the terrain that we're um, navigating as workers. Um, curious, how many of you would consider yourself a worker at the moment? Just... Okay, all right. And what are the rest of you doing? <laughs> Studying? Studying, perhaps? Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, I, I won't go any further because we, we're getting down to small numbers. But basically, work, as far as God is concerned, it doesn't matter whether it's paid or not. You're here to work in life. And, and this is part of who we are. And this is what I want to try and unpack with you tonight. Who gave you that understanding of work for you? I mean, for me, it was my parents. My parents were really hard workers and we never, ever relaxed in our house. If you, if you lay down on your bed, it was because you were sick. There was no other reason in our home. You had to be doing something. You had to be active. And I've brought that into my life with my own family now, with my wife and so on. So I have to understand that my, my understanding of work has been shaped somewhere from, by someone. Maybe as an influential teacher at school. Maybe it was the first boss you worked for who was really good, but you have a work, um, you have a work worldview of how you should do it. And you need to know where you've got that from and you need to actively work out whether the Bible is actually influencing that. How do you draw a line between when you work and when you rest? How do you know whether you're overworking or you're underworking in your life? Um, how do you juggle all this stuff, especially when you're you know, juggling a laptop, laptop on a makeshift desk in your bedroom because it's the only space where you can actually work from, from home. So what might God have to say about work? How might he inform you uh, about how you can go about and navigate this thing called work in our life? Now, you've probably heard everybody else's take on work, so why not hear God's tonight for a few minutes? So 
Let's have a look at it together. And the way that we're going to do this, if you look at the outline, is we're going to go to the end of the Bible first because that shows you the goal of all the work that we have. And at the end of the Bible, you get this wonderful picture that's not dissimilar to what most human beings strive for in their life, um, throughout all their life, and that is they, they are dying to have a rest, rest from their labours. A mate of mine, he bought a house over in the York Peninsula um, when he got a bit of inheritance money, and he used to say to me, I just can't wait to get the fishing rods in the back of the um, car, you know, get the dog in, get the kids, and then we're off, you know, over to paradise, he said. But unfortunately for him, tragically, his wife contracted aggressive cancer, and within 12 months, um, she died, he'd sold the house in paradise, if you like, and rest eluded him. Uh, the bottom fell out of his bag. God pictures uh, rest for us, and his picture actually eclipses anything that we could come up with as our idea of paradise. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, we're like children who are content to make mud pies in the backyard when we've been offered a holiday by the sea. We're far too easily pleased. We're far too easily pleased. We don't want it enough. See, the great longing inside of you to somehow get out of work one day, um, and it might be a long way off, but you will be wanting to do that at some point. My, my daughter is 25, and she has already working out when she can get long service leave, and I just think, oh my goodness, if you're thinking like this now, how are you going to last a whole lifetime of doing this? But anyway... Um, you may have your picture of what rest looks like. Maybe it's just even getting to the weekend. But I'll tell you this, it's an echo of what God has put into your DNA, of what he wants for you. He wants you to have paradise, not some shriveled up view of it in your life. And that's how it finishes in the Bible. So now we can go back to the beginning. That's where we're headed. And uh, if you go back to the beginning, uh, what you notice is that uh, there's God as a worker, Genesis 1. 35 times in chapter 1, God is working and creating the world. And then you get to chapter 2 and it says this. You just pop it up on the screen now. Um, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man he had formed and the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the garden, out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Now, you probably know these verses, but they are radical. They were radical in the time that they were put together as well. And that's because most of the other creation stories of the same time in history portrayed man being made to work for the gods so that they could rest. So we were just there, you know, sort of tossing up the grapes to the gods who were, you know, sort of lounging around on their um, lilos and stuff. Uh, enjoying life, and we were the ones who were working. Work was bad, and particularly manual work. So in Greek mythology, you get the god Zeus giving Pandora, the first woman created, um, a box. And she gets given the box on one condition. She's not to open the box. Well, you know, you know what's going to happen in this, don't you? It's like don't walk on the grass. So um, she opens the box, and it's a disaster. And out of it comes... Death, decay, and guess what else? Work, yeah. 
Work is a bad thing in Greek mythology, a bad thing. The ancient Greeks thought it was a curse. They're not the only ones, if you ask people in, in your circles too. People think that work is often a curse that they've got to get through. And yet Genesis flies in the face of that when it talks about work. God makes us from the earth. And when you look at Genesis 1 and 2, you see God with dirt under his fingernails, digging up things, planting things. And as his image bearers, God creates us to do the same. We're there to cultivate, to steward, to look after, subdue, to fill, to keep. So work should be a blessing for us. That's why it was created. And if you think of the paramedic trained to deal with an emergency who comes to pick you up after a car trauma, thank, thank God he knows what to do. He is a blessing to you because he's working well. When he, st uh, when he gets you into that ambulance and takes you off to hospital. And the person who can, you know, turn your backyard full of weeds into a magnificent little um, patch for you to go out and keep looking at all the time, that, that, is, that is good work. It's manual, it might be menial, it might take sweat, but it's good. And the person who goes into a company that's gone bust and says, you know, let me have the books and let's see what's going on here because we need to sort this out. They bring order out of chaos. And that's good. And they're reflecting their creator. So that's half the story. Work is good. Because if you go on to the next chapter, in chapter 3, you know that something goes wrong with work. So we get to the first human beings disobeying God. They eat from the only tree that they're asked not to eat from. It's a bit like the Pandora's box thing. So they eat from that tree and then there's a curse that comes and it says this. Cursed is the ground because of you, because of what you've done. Through painful toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat the food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you will return. Now, does anything strike you as significant there? Have a look at it. Because what I notice is five times in three sentences, eating is mentioned. Eating is the way that sin entered human life, and now the punishment is in the eating. The punishment is in the eating. What was once provided for, now has to be secured through sweat and toil and struggle. And the frustration with putting food on the table is a constant reminder of that faithful act of disobedience when the first our ancestors ate what God told them not to eat. Think about it. At every level, we're out of sync with the world. And just when we think we've come up with a solution for how we're going to make the world work again properly... We find a new thing that goes wrong. And this is what happens with people <laughs> with computer programs all the time. Two weeks ago, our phone line went dead on a Friday afternoon. And when it went dead, that meant the internet went dead because we're not on MBN. And, and for a person running a ministry out of their home, that put me in a major flap, I can tell you. I, I went on to the call waiting service for my provider and sat there for a mind-numbing amount of time and eventually got on to someone who said they'll get a technician out. The technician came the next day, which was amazing. So um, they came along, they went out on the street, they had a look at what's going on, and then they come in and they go, oh, 
No, no, no. Well, you, you see, the, the, the line somewhere down here, under between that tree and that stoby pole, it's been, it's broken. And, and unfortunately, there's only one house that needs this line, you. So no one else in the street needs that line. So uh, what? And then he looks up at the stoby pole as if he's had some epiphany and he says, the MBN will be coming soon and you will be able to link up to them. And then he left. Well, I rang the MBN. <laughs> and they said, you're not getting the MBN until the end of the year. 31st of December is the earliest possible that we can schedule it. So now I'm three and a half months without a phone line and the internet, unable to work. So I go back to my call provider. And I'm on the mind-numbing queuing of music that I can now sing um, to you. But anyway, finally, they send a technician out two days later. And that technician, he works really hard. I mean, I get him and say to him, you've got no idea how important this is. So he goes out and he said, I'll do what I can. I actually said to him, I'm praying. Um, so, so he went out, he had a look, and he magically, he was able to fix it up. And uh, he came back in, he said, I'm really annoyed with the previous contractor because he said, you do realise that um, they, they're contracted for the number of jobs they attend, not the number of jobs they fix. So what I counted was five people who were really, really frustrated about work in that particular scenario. Are you frustrated with your work? What have you been frustrated with in your work over the last week? Because I bet you there's some frustration there. Because this is part of living in a fallen world. Work is tainted. It's frustrated. Ecclesiastes puts it this way. It says, I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them for one who comes after me. And who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool. Yet he'll have control over all the work into which I've poured my effort and skill under the sun. We work so hard and often sometimes we see our efforts just go and disappear down the drain on us. Think about um, cleaning, for example. You know, cleaning, you wipe the bench tops, you dust, you, you, you vacuum the carpet, you wash the stains off your clothes, you disinfect the bathroom, and you do it over and over and over again all through your life. You just keep taking that dirt layer by layer off. And then what happens at the end? You end up under six feet of it. It's, it's pretty ironic, isn't it? <laughs> this, is not, this is not an encouragement not to be clean, but work is a struggle. And if you think about those ironies in life that we go through, Work is, you, you, will, you will feel two things because of this. You'll either think, I'm just going to work so hard so I can get it out the way so I can just rest. Or you're going to think, how in the world can I get out of work? How can I skip it? How can I, you know, get through it? How can I find a shortcut? You're going to either overwork or you're going to underwork. And for conscientious Christians, it's probably the first extreme that we are tempted most to do, I think, because we're trying to, you know, we're trying to be good as Christians and be a good witness to other people. So we work hard. 
but we can get tied up in all sorts of reasons why we're working. Work can measure your economic worth. You know, you tell people what you do and they start sizing you up. Um, work gives you lifestyle options like you mightn't have had before. Um, and it's a source of respect and status to say certain things to, about your work to people. People go, oh, that's interesting. Other times they say, hmm, that's so what? You know, it depends what, um, what your status and your occupation is. So in summary, what is God saying about work that we've seen so far? Work is good. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But it's a good thing that we were designed to do out because God himself does it. But it's painfully gone wrong. And it's frustrating because you're dislocated from God. And I think that's why I find I can meet with one person who's been made redundant one month and you know they're going, oh, I don't think I'll ever get another job. Oh, I just don't know well, what I'll do with my life if I can't work and blah, blah, blah. And then they land a dream job. You pray with them. They land a dream job. And then you see them in a month's time and they're going, oh, my job, it's such a pain. I hate it, you know. So they're squealing about their workload. So all of a sudden, they swing between those two points because that's because work is frustrating. There's no ideal work at the end of the day. So how is God going to solve this dilemma for us? Well, he sends his son to work. And Jesus comes into our world and he works. Well, what does he do? Well, he, he was a carpenter, but he did more than this. Listen to Jesus' words about his work. He says, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Now, you need to know the setting in which he said this. There's a bit of background. He's just healed a man on the Sabbath, which is the rest day, the day of restoration and recovery. And he's criticised because he's done this. And yet, what is his work? Well, his work, in essence, is to heal and to put back together and to restore an invalid affected by the fall. Which really, when you think about it, that's what the rest day is all about, isn't it? It's about being restored. So Jesus' goal is, in all his work, is to get us back to a life in paradise with him. And so he works to buy people back to their creator from whom they're now estranged. And he starts doing that, and you see it in the Gospels. That will give us true rest. And another point, Jesus says this about his work. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Now, what makes me think that Jesus thinks that dying on the cross is his work? Well, because the final words of Jesus that he utters at the cross are what? It's finished. Haven't you ever said those words yourself? When you've got through an assignment, oh, it's finished, it's over, it's done. So here we have Jesus talking about not just the horrific execution that he's just been through, but the whole grand task of reversing the fall of creation. And that's why when you read some sort of theological book about Jesus, they will describe what he's done as the work of Christ. That's his job. That's his work. His dying on the cross is what secures ultimate rest for us. And it's hard work, harder work than we've ever known. Now, how do you know if it worked? 
That's a really good question, isn't it, if someone asked you that? How do you know whether what he did on the cross worked? Well, that it would have to start reversing the effects of the fall. Because if there's anything that makes a mockery of our existence and our work, it's the fact uh, that death itself is the victor in the end. And Jesus' resurrection tackles that head on. It's more than just a party trick. It's more than just to say, hey, look, I'm God. It's the surest sign that Christ's work has worked. It's the forerunner, if you like, of many, many, many resurrections to come. Now, as the mob are closing in on Jesus the night before he died, he gets his disciples together and he says these words to them. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and also in me. In my Father's house and many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. He knew exactly what was coming next. I'm going to prepare a place for you. You think about it in life, when somebody fusses over you, when they go ahead of you. You know, you arrive somewhere and they put chocolates on your pillow or they've got the fire all set for you to just light it or a beautiful meal cooking away. What does that say? That says their preparation says that they've invested in you. They care. You're treasured. You're valued. And here, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. There's far more coming. You think about it, of all the pictures that you could paint to depict heaven, the dominating one that the Bible chooses is rest. You say, what does God do when he finishes making the world? Rest. Um, what happens and what gets lost at the fall? Rest. It eludes people. And, what, and it's eluded people ever since. And Jesus comes into the world and what does he offer a tired worker? He says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you more work. Rest. Rest. Isn't that what most people are hanging out for that you know? They just want to stop and rest. They don't want to struggle like this in their career or their job. It's, this is the great longing in people. And if you don't believe me, just take another look at somebody who's about five days away from going on holidays. They're very happy. They swing around the office. They sing because they're going away. They're going to have a rest soon. So you can throw them anything that week and they don't care because they're going to rest. But rest is so much more than just the absence of work. We're created to work, but we are wired for rest. And uh, a person can go up to Port Douglas, they can lie on a beach and they can be like a dog with fleas. You know, they just can't relax because they're not at rest. They're not at peace with themselves. They're not at ease. Real rest is to be reconciled right here in yourself, to yourself and to the people around you, and to your maker. According to God, rest is relationship uh, with his son, Jesus Christ. And it's the ultimate. If you're, if you're packing away a bit of super and you've started work, this is the real super. This is the superannuation on steroids. A Christian can work because they're invested in the great work that Jesus began when he reconciled people to God at the cross. And they understand that talking that up 
with the people around them is indispensable for a real life. You're made for work. Work's gone wrong. Christ comes to work and his work secures our rest. So, a few tips for navigating work in the coming week or year or the rest of this year. Keep asking the question, why do I work? It's so important. Or otherwise, it will get submerged and you'll be working for all sorts of reasons that you're unconscious of. Why do I work? To pay the bills, you know, to keep myself out of mischief because I reflect my maker when I work, who himself is a worker. If you stop asking that question, you'll end up like a drone bee in a hive. You'll just go off and do it and come home, do it and go home. God's answer to the question why you work soars above anything I've ever heard another human being tell me. Tip two, understand work as a treadmill. You know, <laughs> um, at a gym, when you go to the gym, I have had an embarrassing moment on a treadmill, but um, there are three things you need to do with a treadmill. You need to step onto it without incident. <laughs> you need to stay on it and, and navigate it while you're there, and then you need to gracefully get off it at some point. And work is like that. For the Christian, the way you start out in a job, if you begin a job soon, for some of you, the way you hit that job and, and step onto it, the way you stay in it and why you're there, and the way you handle stepping off it, they're going to be the points when people really look at you to see whether your life's distinctive, I think. And they may come to understand something of Jesus through your behaviour on the treadmill. Third tip, appreciate that work is going to keep changing for the rest of your life. The pandemic is just a blip <laughs> on all this because no work stays the same. You get into a job, you like it, you think it's fantastic, you love the people you're working with, it'll change. And that's because economies go up and down and workplaces go up and down and get restructured and teams change and you will change as well. Work is like a trampoline. It just keeps going up and down. You can't hold it in frozen perfection. And for Christians, the balancing act when you're going up and down like that is to make sure that you have some anchorage, some anchor points that you're tethered to. And there are two um, points. I didn't organise this tonight, but one of those points is the cross. You go back to that point in time where Jesus dealt with the issue of your sin and which was really just being turned in on yourself and unable to do anything else but be absorbed with, you, with yourself. And he dealt with that and you're anchored to what that's done for you now. And then on the other side, you've got Jesus returning one day into this world to completely renovate and restore and give you rest complete. And you've got those two points that you imaginarily are linked to, if you like, with giant elastic bands. And you still go up and down like everybody else does in the workplace, but it's moderated because of your anchor points. Okay, tip number four. Live one to two levels below your income. I don't know how important this is um, to stress this to you. One of the main reasons why we're overworked is not because we get, you know, we end up with a demon employer. It's because we get like this about money. 
And uh, let me give you an example of what I mean. Um, let's just say <coughs> a salary package that you have could range between one to five. You know, level one, that's the startup, you know, and level five is, you know, um, something that you, you know, imagine maybe some people have anyway in life. But you start off, you go in, and let's say you go in at a level two salary. And you work hard, and they see that you're good, and then the company, you know, offers you a level four job. And so you take the level four job and you think, man, this is, I've never seen so much money in my bank account in my life. And then you think, what am I doing in this hovel where I am? I, I could live in a nice place. I could rent somewhere really good. So then you go up in your lifestyle to a level four house. And uh, then you think, boy, this, is, this job is really hard. Uh, I need to get some rest. I need to, I need to pamper myself. I need, I, need to get, I need to get meals in because I can't cook. I've got no time to do that. And I need to get away as much as I can on the weekend because I'm so exhausted and I need to recover so I can do my job the following week. And what happens is you get accustomed to living at level four lifestyle with your level four income. But what happens when you get uh, retrenched? What happens if you get retrenched? You are a slave to level four. You go around, you don't ask the question, what will I do next, God? You say, where are the level four jobs? I've got to find another level four job because I've got this mortgage over here and I've got this and I'm supporting that and I can't, that's too hard. So you're a slave. You've allowed a job to become, um, you know, enslaved to the whole thing. All of life hinges on finding a job that will maintain that level four. So stay a few levels below and you'll never be in that situation. You'll be liberated and you'll have freedom and you'll be empowered. Jesus said to one uh, obsessed worker who was building more and more barns, if you remember the story, he says, fool, today your soul is required of you. You know, I had no idea when it was coming, did he? Okay, tip number five, I think. Try and integrate your work with God's work. Do you realise that up until the third century, the gospel was actually spread not by full-time Christian workers and missionaries, but by Christians, countless ordinary Christians? I've been going through the book of Acts with a guy who's become a Christian along the way, um, reading it. And he, he notices this. He notices that there are merchants and slaves and soldiers and tradesmen and prominent public figures and even jailers who are spreading the story about Jesus across the Middle East and up into Turkey. And he's astounded by this. So begin seeing your work as your mission field, the place where you can extend God's kingdom a little bit further. Because I tell you now, Nick and Mark can't go where you go during the week, generally speaking. They can't get into that place. So it's your mission field. It's your area of God's kingdom to extend. One person in the public media um, actively, he showed me a prayer that he prays every time before he does the news. And I just thought, this is amazing. This is amazing that he thinks through how he's going to communicate to an audience that he can't see every, every time he's got to present. Another person is in real estate, and real estate is only one step up from selling used cars. But anyway, real estate. <laughs> so he, he, says, he says to me, I said, well, why? Why? Why do you do it? And he goes, well, 
I get, I have the privilege of getting with people in some of the most vulnerable and prof profound moments of life. People are in a separation or a divorce. People are selling their mum or dad's home as they go into a retirement village. They've got to up sticks because they're going to move because they've been retrenched or whatever. And he says, I count it a great privilege as a Christian to walk with them through that journey. Thought, what a great attitude of bringing the kingdom of God uh, to your work, integrating your work with God's great work. David Miller um, gives a great definition of work in the book by Doriani, which is recommended at the, on the notes if you're interested in this topic of work. But here's his definition. Work is not merely about making a living while avoiding sin. You're not just doing that in life. It's about extending the kingdom rule of the Lord Jesus. Okay, finally, take a long-haul view of human achievement. One of the great things about being a Christian is we can be some of the best workers in the world because we're, we hold light to the things that are in it. You know, everything doesn't hinge on having everything in this world for us. And so we can make some of the best workers. And we have a comprehensive, logical, and well-thought-through worldview of why we work. So my challenge as you go home tonight is to think about what's your view of work? And is it God's view of work? And how can it be more like that? And if you have got that view of work, do you share it with other people around you when they express their frustration about work? Because people are always talking about work. You know, they're always saying something about work. Well, why don't you share something about your understanding of work that you've come to appreciate from uh, God himself? I think the lurking fear for many people is that they pour sweat and time into something that will come to nothing at the end of the day. You know, that's the great fear, isn't it, when you, when you work, is that it's never going to turn into anything. But the alternative perspective for the Christian comes from the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul's God, uh, uh, where Paul the Apostle says these words, let nothing move you, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour, your work in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, please help us as Christians to not just go to work like a drone. Um, help us to think through our work, to understand the doctrine of work taught in your word. Help us to consider the ultimate work that you did to secure our ultimate rest. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.